Our culture is in a crisis, and the solution to that crisis is the gospel message. St. John's Seminary, the seminary of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, offers an online MA in pastoral ministry degree for anyone interested in receiving formation for ministry. This program helps students improve their knowledge of the Catholic intellectual tradition and develop practical skills for ministry. A studio with professional video, audio, and lighting equipment allows our students to have an enjoyable technological experience, a necessity for any online learning environment. Anyone who is working in and around the Roman Catholic Church in North America needs an education like this. There's no way you could get this kind of education anywhere than at a seminary. Our online Master of Arts in Pastoral Ministry offers you the chance to continue your education in ministry and designed to provide you with the knowledge, spiritual formation, and practical skills that you need to serve the family of God in our parishes, schools, and other ministries. By grounding yourself in the intellectual tradition of the Catholic Church, you will be able to go out into this culture and leaven it with the good news. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Monsignor Robert Sarno, who was ordained for the Diocese of Brooklyn in 1973. For 38 years, he worked for the Congregation for the Causes of Saints in Rome and formerly is the Pope Leo the Great Chair of Canon Law in Causes of Canonizations here at St. John's Seminary in the year 2020. First of all, Monsignor Sarno, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Uh, I'd like to talk today about the uh, Congregation for the Causes of Saints, uh, sainthood, what is a saint, uh, the process, uh, and you've uh, participated in, in multiple uh, causes, including one for uh, uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta. So that's the sort of general conversation I'd like to talk about uh, today. So why don't we start with uh, the basics. Um, what or who is a saint? I like to say that a saint has two eyes, the eye for imitation and the eye for intercession. Basically, if you want to talk street talk, a saint is someone who's made the grade following Christ closely. The saint is in heaven. And uh, because of that, the Holy Spirit offers us these models for our intercession. In other words, people who have made the grade, and if we are like them, if we imitate them, we too will make the grade. In other words, we'll get to heaven. So these people are people who have followed Christ more closely in their lives than the general population, let's say. And they stand out as particular models for our intercession. I think the important thing to realize is that a cause of canonization is really a process of discernment. The church discerns, basically, what God is saying to the faithful. Because in order to start a cause of canonization, it's not that the church or the bishop goes out among the faithful and says, oh, we should canonize this one or we should canonize that one. But rather, it is the work of the Holy Spirit raising up in the minds and the hearts of the faithful the conviction that this person was really and truly holy and therefore can and should be imitated because if you imitate that person, you too will make the grade. So that first eye of imitation is extremely important. And of course, the second eye is for intercession, that these people, because they are close to the Lord, because they are in heaven, and because we are a communion of saints, we're a family, we pray for each other, we help each other, and so they help us, they pray for us. Unfortunately, I think, you know, we're human and we get caught up in miracles because 
We doubt that God exists. We doubt that God cares about our world. We doubt that whether he interferes and intervenes in our world, whether some people even doubt that he can intervene in our world. And so oftentimes what happens is the real meaning of a saint, the idea of this imitation of a good and holy life, gets lost behind miracles. Everybody wants to talk about miracles. They <laughs> want to know about miracles. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it kind of uh, miscolors, uh, discolors, uh, distorts even what the purpose, the image, uh, and the reality of a saint is. Mm-hmm. Remember, the word saint comes from sanctus, mm-hmm. which means holy. Mm-hmm. So that someone has followed Christ in that, that sequela Christi, that following of Christ. And you say, you know, one so often our, our Protestant brothers and sisters will say, well, why do you have to follow a saint when you have Christ? Well, in reality, that has a certain uh, element of truth. Mm-hmm. But the other side of the coin is Christ wasn't the mother of a family or the father of a family. I don't know if Christ changed diapers. I don't Mm -hmm. know if he was in a school teaching. I don't know if he worked on the docks. Uh, All of these different aspects of life which our Lord gave uh, general understandings and and guidelines and laws and rules of how to live. But the concrete living out of these things, uh, this is where saints come in. Mm -hmm. They're kind of like signposts on the road. Mm. You know, if you're going from Los Angeles to New York by car, Uh, You're on a highway, and it's got signs that warn you, make a right turn, make a left turn, watch falling rocks, watch uh, wet roads, slippery roads, different signs that guide you on the way to your goal to go from New York to Los Angeles or Los Angeles to New York. Well, in reality, saints, I think, are the same way. They're kind of like signposts on the road to heaven that God offers us. Sometimes he's saying, you're on the right road, keep going. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he gives us a slap in the face and says, you're not on the right road, change your direction, or watch this slippery part, watch this rock in the road. And I think that's what saints are more Mm. than anything. So this idea of signposts helping us get from point A to point B, um, what would you say are some relevant points about saints in our particular cultural moment with the challenges we have, especially in the United States, um, and, and how can those saints help us navigate not just roads in general, but the particular cultural tumultuous roads that we have right now? Well, rather than start from there mm. and going to saints, perhaps we might understand it better if we go from saints to what's happening. Look at the saints that have been recently made. Mm. You look at someone like a um, Oscar Romero. You look at someone like Mother Teresa of Calcutta. You look at St. Damien and St. Marian of Molokai. You look at um, uh, Junipero Serra, uh, a missionary and evangelist. Um, You look, for example, at these different kinds of people. Their messages seem to be the same, uh, one of love, justice, and charity. And so from there, I would go to resolving the questions of life, uh, the questions that are presented to our society. Mm I could also, it just came to my mind when I think of St. Gianna Beretta Molla, when you mm-hmm. deal with the whole issue of abortion. Yeah. So rather than start necessarily from the issues, perhaps mm-hmm. it might be helpful because in keeping with the idea that it's God who raises up these saints, mm-hmm. we don't pick them. Yeah. So really it's important to say, well, now what is God saying to us mm-hmm. with these different holy people who are who by, who spontaneously rise above the uh, faithful. 
When you look at young people, you know, the problems of young people, you look at two interesting uh, candidates, both are blessed and uh, being considered for canonization at, as we speak. One is blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati, who was from Turin in Italy and who was a, come from a very wealthy, uh, well-to-do, high-society family. Mm -hmm. And yet Pier Giorgio was known as a mountain climber, a, a, a um, someone who rode bikes, someone who smoked a pipe, uh, someone who went out with his friends. And, and interestingly, before he went out with his friends, he always took them to church to pray first. <laughs> um, when Pier Giorgio's funeral was held, um, while his family expected the hoi polloi of Turin to show up because of his family position, you couldn't move through the streets because of all the poor people and the simple people of Turin that came out for his funeral. Mm -hmm. And so you look at, you see him, a 24-year-old young man who lived a very simple, normal, yet active young adult life and how that speaks to so many uh, young people today. When you look at, for example, um, Blessed Carlo Acutis, who... Um, Yes, was involved in miracle uh, in uh, computers, uh, you know, more uh, like a, a modern uh, kind of a young person. Uh, but his concern was about Eucharistic uh, mysteries mm -hmm. um, and how important the Eucharist is for today's world. So, I, you know, I question your, your, your point of mm -hmm. departure mm -hmm. rather than from the problems to the saints. Mm -hmm. You know, in other words, we know what the problems are. Let's, let's look for the saints. Mm -hmm. I think God is saying... Look, here are the saints. Now, some of these are answers to your problems. Mm. Yeah, to that point, um, a few years ago, the parents of the little flower were canonized. And that sort of um, remind, make, uh, comes to mind to your point that we have this crisis of um, marriages today, especially in this culture, uh, and how uh, uh, her parents um, could be a response, as you were saying, to those, the problems of the family. Well, you know, it certainly goes with our Catholic tradition that uh, even on a philosophical level, mm. God exists. He can intervene in the world, and he does intervene in the world. And so we can think of God as sitting quietly in heaven on a throne, being adored, praised, and lauded by the cherubim and the seraphim and the principalities, but rather God who is all-knowing, all-loving, and who is involved in our lives and knows what we need. And so the Holy Spirit raises up in the hearts of the faithful the conviction that certain individuals stand out above the rest. Mm -hmm. And again, if we read the signs of the times that the saints that have been presented to us by God, basically they, they give answers to these uh, modern problems, the problems of men and women uh, and young people in society today. I'd mentioned that you, for 38 years, worked in the Congregation for the Causes of saints. Um, what exactly is that? Well, just a few uh, months ago, the word congregation was changed to dicastery. So uh -huh. it's the dicastery okay. for the causes of the saints. But uh, it still amounts to the same thing. It's the office charged by the Holy Father to uh, study all of the candidates who are presented by the local churches for beatification and ultimately for canonization by the Holy Father. So the office is composed of about 30 individuals internally who all contribute together to um, help advance the study and the judgment on these causes that are presented by the local churches. Um, again, it's one of the most collegial processes mm -hmm. because it's not that one person decides, and even though the Holy Father makes the ultimate decision, 
he's not like like a bird in a gilded cage. He mm -hmm. has advisors, people sure. who, who are responsible for various fields. So in the congregation, or rather in the dicastery, there are the internal officials, but there are also the external officials. So you have a group of historical consultors, men and women who would study the historical problems and difficulties presented by each case uh, or cause, rather. In other words, every, all holiness is a reality, but it is lived in the concrete here and now, in the historical reality. And that individual has to be placed in that historical, social, and religious context in which that faith grew and uh, grew to a point of heroicity, if you will. And then there are theological consultants who obviously would deal with the theological issues involved in beatification and canonization. There are also in there a bunch of canon lawyers who are responsible for the procedures that are effected because in reality, uh, canon law is basically the application of theological principles. In other words, a certain procedure has been determined to be the best way to get to the truth. Mm. And therefore, one of the elements, and it's, it's one of the elements, is to make sure that the proper procedure was done so that the truth can be reached and that the, the faithful uh, who are obliged uh, um, to have the truth uh, may have truth, which is ultimately justice. Mm. So that's why in, in a cause of canonization, there's always a promoter of justice, someone who makes sure that everything is done properly. And then finally, you have the medical board of about 80 to 90 doctors in various fields of specialization who deal with the question of miracles, uh, because basically before you can talk about divine intervention, you must eliminate any possibility of a natural, human, scientifically explained intervention. And so that's where the medical board comes in in order to deal with the issues of, of miracles first. Uh, can you give a brief sketch of the, the historical development from the ways that saints were recognized in the early church to the, the medieval sort of administrative processes up to the present? How did that sort of process develop? Well, you just said something that's very important for to people to realize, that a process of canonization is not monolithic. Mm -hmm. The process that we have now is the result of almost 2,000 years of uh, development and fine-tuning. So when you talk about the primeval or the primordial church and what was how they were canonized, when they were in the catacombs still during the persecutions up to around the year 333 uh, A.D., uh, basically the head of the community, who was the bishop, would gather around the tomb of someone who obviously had just been killed and put into the tomb and considered holy because they were martyred for the faith, and they would celebrate the Eucharist, which, of course, is the reason why in all our altars we still put the relics of martyrs uh, to remind us of that catacomb experience. And so those people were spontaneously declared as saints because basically they were given liturgical honor. The Eucharistic celebration was held over their tomb or sometimes near the tomb. In other words, admitting that this person had suffered and died a violent death for the faith and therefore again was worthy of imitation because the idea was today it was him or her, tomorrow it's going to be maybe you. And so it gave the people that idea of imitation and then intercession. You made the grade, if tomorrow I'm sitting in front of the lion, you know, help me to accept that. Mm -hmm. 
Then I think one of the probable, let's say, juridical developments came around the time of Justinian, around the 7th century, where you had a development of a code of law. And I think that began to uh, also influence, if you will, the papal court or the, the church. In other words, how can we guarantee the truth and the justice of the declaration of who is a saint? Let me just backtrack a little bit before that. Mm -hmm. In 333, when Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, uh, admitting that Christianity uh, could practice freely uh, in the Roman Empire. In other words, it gave a juridical status. It didn't make it the religion of the empire. That wasn't until later. But what happened was then, once the community uh, was free, then they did a process of what's called elevatio and translatio. In other words, the act of canonization was the bishop or the head of the community with the faithful would elevatio, would raise up the body of the person in the catacombs and translatio, transfer the body to a basilica that was built to house the body. And that process of lifting up the body and moving it to the basilica was the act of canonization. Mm. Then, then we jump to the 7th century where it began to become more uh, juridical and more standardized. And so basically what you had was, again, the bishop or bishops in synod would uh, discuss the life of an individual, always to verify if the person was imitatable. Mm-hmm. That's the key thing. Mm-hmm. But that was always considered and is still considered a human judgment. Because in reality, we judge those things on the basis of external acts, Mm -hmm. but we don't know what the heart of an individual is. So basically, miracles, which is only, uh, it's only a church law, it's not divine law, Mm -hmm. uh, is basically a confirmation of what is a human judgment. It's asking God to give us confirmation that the judgment made about the holiness of the individual is an honest and true judgment. Then again, you know, uh, the main, one of the main uh, points of development of canonization probably goes to a, a very interesting year of 1234. <laughs> In the year 1234, uh, a letter written by Pope Alexander III was put into the very first universal collection of church law, which were called the Decretals of Gregory IX. And that said that only the Pope could canonize. But then there were difficulties and problems, but the process then began to undergo developments until in 1917, the law of the church was codified into a body of law, which we call the Code of Canon Law. And in there, the whole process of the beatification and canonization of saints was codified and put into the church law of 1917. But if you look at causes of saints, the law and causes of saints underwent tremendous amount of changes just from 1917 to 1983 was when the last major renovation of the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the development of historiography and of uh, hagiography about writing truth about holy things, um, the law gradually began to change. And then in 1983, when the new code of canon law was published after the Second Vatican Council, it was decided to take the law of the laws of beatification and canonization out of the code of canon law because they felt that due to the uh, experience of the past, if things needed to be changed, 
they could easily be done without what we call in canon law abrogating this law, substituting with that law. Mm -hmm. It would be easier mm -hmm. to work on the law if changes needed to be made. So John Paul II promulgated the Constitution called uh, the Divine Teacher and Model of Perfection on the same day as the Code of Canon Law was, uh, uh, was promulgated so that the new law in Causes of Saints is January 25th, 1983. Mm -hmm. And then the congregation, or now the dicastery, then the congregation, published uh, the norms to be observed by diocesan bishops in Causes of Saints in February of the same year. In other words, a guideline for how to instruct processes. Because the major shift was made in 1983 that no longer does the Holy See or the Pope initiate causes of canonization. Mm -hmm. The diocesan bishop has the right to initiate a cause of canonization. So basically the process is now the diocesan bishop decides and starts the cause of canonization. And he collects all the evidence for and against the person's beatification and canonization. And then he sends all of that evidence to Rome, to the dicastery for the causes of the saints. And there the material is studied, and then a judgment is made, and then it is submitted to the Holy Father who makes the final judgment. So that, in a nutshell, is kind of like the uh, development of the legislation in sure. the causes of the saints. Thank you. What would you say would be um, some sort of significance um, um, in the change from the pope initiates the cause to the local bishop? Well, certainly the first element is the idea of collegiality of the Second Vatican Council, that the Pope and the bishops are a college, they're a united group, and that they work together, and that the Pope and the bishops are, in, are responsible for the pastoral guidance of their own particular diocese and all the dioceses. <clears throat> because after all, the Pope, besides being the head of the College of Bishops, is the Bishop of Rome, sure. the Diocese of Rome. So the idea of collegiality was that they would participate in the Pope's authority to initiate causes. The second reason, I think, has to be based in the reality that it is not possible for one man, the Pope, to be in touch and uh, be able to um, judge the signs of the times in far-off places. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so he has to rely on bishops to indicate who in their local dioceses could possibly, uh, who would stand out as holy people and therefore could be and should be proposed for canonization. In other words, imitation, intercession. And the third element being veneration. Mm. The end of cult, I'm sorry, the end of beatification and canonization is Unfortunately, what has become a very bad word in English, but in reality has a very specific meaning mm -hmm. in, in our world. It's called cult, which is liturgical honor. Mm -hmm. And so when someone is beatified or canonized, uh, the Holy Father grants liturgical honor to that individual. But I'm sure it would surprise your listeners to know the difference between beatification and canonization, mm. simply because we are seeing an incredible violation of the laws about beatification throughout the world. What do you mean by that? Well, beatification has no theological significance. Mm -hmm. And that may shock you, but I'll ask you one question. Mm. Is a blessed in heaven or not? I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> because if you say to me a blessed's in heaven, mm -hmm. then he's a saint. Right. 
but yet why is there a distinction made between the blessed and the saint beatification and canonization? Beatification developed later on in history mm. because the process was so long and complicated. The bishops basically, from a pastoral concern, said, in effect, if you want street talk, give us something in the meantime. <laughs> because my people are screaming, they love this person, they mm. admire this person, they imitate, they talk about them. And so beatification developed as local restricted cult. Mm. So I'll give you an example. Someone who's declared blessed, let's say... Um, Blessed uh, Carlo Acutis, mm -hmm. where can he be honored liturgically? Mm -hmm. Only in the Archdiocese of Assisi. Mm -hmm. He may not be honored anywhere else in the world because in Assisi is where they did the cause. Yeah. So any veneration of his relics on a public level, public veneration, is prohibited. Mm -hmm. um, um, pilgrimages with his relics around the country, around the world, are forbidden liturgically they're forbidden if you have exa an example for example like when mother Teresa was just blessed okay mm, yeah. that cult would be limited to the archdiocese of Calcutta and also to all the houses of the missionaries of charity mm. but when you start talking about for example a missionary of charity whose houses are all over the world when you start talking about a Capuchin or a Dominican whose houses are all over the world what kind of restricted cult really is that? Mm -hmm. So there are many people who now feel that beatification has uh, outlasted its purpose. Mm. And because in reality, the, the type of cult that is given to a blessed and the saint is exactly the same, except the, beated, the blessed, the beatification, is limited to either the diocese and or the religious order. But the quality of the cult the liturgical honor is the same. Mm. A day is uh, reserved for the honor of the individual. A mass is celebrated in that person's honor. It could either be an optional memorial, an obligatory memorial, or in certain houses of the orders, they can be uh, feasts or solemnities. Um, and that's the same for a saint. So where is the quality of difference? It's simply where the person can be honored. Mm. And so in today's world of mass communication, yeah. where you know, what happens in Paris, as opposed to what it was 10, 15 centuries ago, wasn't known in Rome sure. and vice versa for decades, perhaps. Now, what happens in the farthest corner of the world is known in every corner of the world in a matter of split second. Sure. So the world has changed. Mm. And perhaps what's necessary is uh, an updating of the church's uh, situation, or at least it's... Uh, procedures in terms of beatification and canonization. So if you had your way, would you get rid of the beatification process? Absolutely. Okay. You'd mentioned several times... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Please. I would not get rid of the, the process. Be careful. Beatification as an institution, mm -hmm. but not beatification process, because you're perhaps making a common error. Okay. And the common error is the end or purpose of the process is canonization, okay. not beatification. Right. Beatification is kind of like... In the meantime, yeah. we'll give you something. I understand. So you have to be careful when you say. So I would not be opposed. I would be vehemently opposed to the obviously, as you can imagine, yeah. opposed to the process. Sure. But but I would I would support the elimination of beatification. I understand. 
you mentioned a couple of times uh, miracles, and uh, you said that most Catholics today sort of get obsessed when, when talking about this type of question, canonization, get sort of uh, distracted by the question of miracles. Um, can you expand on that? Uh, um, what What is the problem with getting um, caught up on, on miracles? And in fact, what technically is a miracle? Well, that's like 15 questions in one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd, I'd like to preface what I'm going to say or what we're going to talk about or say about miracles. Let's distinguish two things. The essence of holiness and miracles. Mm-hmm. The essence of holiness is divine law. And that can never be changed. Mm -hmm. And as of now, the Holy Father has distinguished three ways, or at least uh, tradition has distinguished two ways, and Pope Francis issued a third way, which was under discussion for centuries, Mm -hmm. by the way. Mm -hmm. So the first and obvious one, which is the total and maximum giving of oneself in imitation of Christ, is martyrdom, where a person is killed because of hatred of the faith. Mm -hmm. The second, which Pope Francis has now instituted, or at least confirmed, but had been under discussion for about three or four centuries, mm-hmm. is the, called the offering of life. And in effect, the offering of life is like a martyrdom, but without the person being killed in hatred of the faith. So in other words, you have a person who, let's say, uh, um, takes care of patients with leprosy or AIDS or COVID, and gets the disease and dies Mm. at an early age. Now, the person has offered his or her life for those who are sick, Mm -hmm. but yet there was no one killing the person Mm -hmm. because of hatred of the faith. The person took that risk, contracted the disease, and died from it, died from an early age, uh, at an early age, from a disease. Mm -hmm. So it's an unexpected death soon in life, Mm -hmm. and but there is no killer to kill someone in hatred of the faith Mm -hmm. that's offering of life and the third way which is the most normal and the most common Mm -hmm. is what we call living a life of heroic virtue Mm -hmm. in other words that a person lives a normal everyday life in an extraordinary way Mm -hmm. and then dies a natural death and therefore is imitatable because of that there is a in all three levels there is a what we might call a heroicity there's a heroic element there. You mm-hmm. go beyond and above the normal. In other words, we have to be clear about one thing. In terms of holiness, everyone is called to be holy. Right. Because in other words, if when you die, you close your eyes and you don't wake up in front of the Lord, you are in big trouble. <laughs> okay? So we're all called to be holy. We're all called to be saints. We're all called to get to heaven. And that is God's gift to us, his call to be holy. Mm-hmm. And we all have to respond to that. But in that mass of humanity for God's wisdom, in God's wisdom. Some are chosen and given special charisms and gifts, and they accept them and respond and stand out above. Mm -hmm. And so they are either martyred, they either offer their life, or they live a life of heroic virtue, and therefore are imitatable. Mm -hmm. But all of that is, is of again, that's uh, divine law. Uh, To be holy and how to be holy is divine law. No pope can dispense from it in terms of canonizing someone. Mm -hmm. Miracles is a divine law because basically what the church says is when we judge martyrdom or offering of life or heroic virtue, you're basically judging on the basis of external acts. The nicest, the kindest, the most, if you will, in quotes, holy act Mm -hmm. may be the most selfish, 
I'll give you a great example. At times when I would be living with a, bu- with a bunch of priests in Rome, I, I would get like cookies or candy, and I would always bring them home and put them out for the priests. And oh, they, you know, of course, anybody would like them, and they're, sure. they're nice before and after lunch. And oh, Bob, you know, you're so generous, and how great. And I said, no, I'm not generous. I'm being very selfish. Because mm. if I have this stuff in my room, and I'll eat it. <laughs> and since I'm a little bit overweight and I'm diabetic, yeah. you know, I would hurt myself. So sure. this is a selfish act. Yeah. An act that seems very generous, very kind. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's trite. That's yeah. a trite example. Right. But, it, you know, we can go on with different kinds of examples of things we do that aren't what they seem. Yeah. And only you know in your heart. And even sometimes, as Scripture says, you, we don't even know our hearts ourselves. Only God knows our heart. So the church regards miracles as divine confirmation mm-hmm. of what is a human act, namely to accept martyrdom. I find it difficult to think that someone would die like that. But again, who am I to judge? The same way in terms of offering of life or of um, heroic virtue. Mm -hmm. We judge on externals the holiness of a person. So the miracle is considered a divine confirmation of what is a human judgment, of Mm -hmm. what is a judgment based on external acts. Okay, so what is a miracle? Let's be very clear. Miracle comes from the word mirum, something in Latin, something wonderful, marvelous to behold. But it's a theological term. Mm -hmm. But a a miracle as such has two elements that compose it. The first element is the scientific element, a human element. In other words, you cannot posit the question, was this divine intervention without asking the question, is there any human scientific explanation for what happened? Because if there is, then you cannot posit the question of whether this was divine intervention. Mm -hmm. So that's where the medical or scientific field comes in. The church requires right now that the miracle be physical. Let's be clear. There are many, many miracles going on every single day in Mm -hmm. everybody's life. But here we are talking. We're talking about what the church requires to be proven Mm -hmm. for a canonization or a a beatification or a canonization. So the church at this moment requires only a physical miracle. Why? Because it has to be measurable Mm -hmm. in space and time. Has to be measurable in space and time. And so therefore, moral miracles that certainly happen Mm -hmm. are not acceptable for beatification and canonization. But they're still miracles. Okay, And the church doesn't get into that. The church only says... What is required for beatification and canonization? It has to be a physical miracle that's scientifically measurable and whose uh, facts can be verified in order to determine whether this was a uh, scientifically explicable or inexplicable fact. Mm -hmm. Then comes the question of intercession. The intercession must be to the individual and exclusively to the individual whose cause of beatification or canonization is being considered. Now, when I say beatification or canonization, I mean the beatification of a servant of God or a venerable servant of God and the canonization of someone who is already blessed. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so what you have to do is you have to show a direct cause and effect between the change, the scientifically inexplicable change of the person's condition with the moment of the request for the intercession of that individual Servant of God, venerable servant of God, or blessed. Mm-hmm. And that, that if you can verify that cause and effect relationship, then you can say it was a miracle. In other words, saints do not 
perform miracles. Mm. They're granted by God through the intercession of someone. And that basically goes on, is based upon our belief in the communion of saints. Mm -hmm. It's something we say in the creed often, and we certainly say it every Sunday and holy day of obligation. What is the communion of saints? The word itself should tell us. It's communio. It's in, cum means with, and unio means union, in union with the saints. In other words, the church on earth, the church in purgatory, and the church in heaven are united. We're in communion. We're in union with one another through the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we're a family. We care about each other. We can pray for each other. It's true we don't, on earth we don't physically see our relatives and friends who have gone before us and now are marked with the sign of faith and sleep in the peace of Christ. But they are our family. Many of them are our extended family. Mm -hmm. They may be our immediate family, our bloodline, but they're also our extended family because by baptism we are made a family. And therefore we do care, we should care, we must care for each other. And so prayer is that spiritual bond that unites us in our moments of need, also in our moments of joy. And so the miracle then is a divine confirmation of what is a human judgment. But it is a reality that has to be measured in time and can have no human scientific explanation. Now, a lot of people say, well, how come so many miracles are cures from diseases? Mm -hmm. That's a very simple uh, question, believe it or not. It's a very simple answer. When you're sick, you have time to worry and pray. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when something happens so rapidly, you know, if you've ever had an accident happen to you, you know, you experience basically the result of the accident, but you don't really know that the accident happened. It's over in a split second, mm -hmm. and you're hurt, you're injured. But that injury may last a while. That sickness may last a while. And then you have enough time to reflect, I might die. Mm -hmm. Please, God, help me. And then please, whomever your particular uh, patron or whom you like to pray to, say, mm -hmm. please help me. And then it goes from there. So 99.9% .9 of the cures uh, or the cases that the dicastery for the causes of the saints deals with are uh, physical miracles regarding healings. And that's basically the reason. Mm. It's just a natural explanation for it. You'd mentioned the uh, offering of life. It, the, the, would um, um, Maxim, uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe fit into that category? Well, certainly he would fit into that category, but it was judged by um, Pope John Paul II that there was hatred mm. on the part of the person who injected him. In other words, up until the time of uh, Nazi and um, communist persecution, mm -hmm. the church always dealt with an individual killing someone. Yeah. But then when you start to talk about ideologies, although perhaps you can even say the Roman ideology sure. in, back in the early centuries was the same thing, yeah. but we really didn't deal much with that after the Roman persecutions ended. It's only when you started the massive persecutions, and, and you know, I would even say the French, starting with the French Revolution, Right. Uh, the French Revolution, uh, the communist and uh, revolution, and as well as uh, the Nazi persecution, that you be we began to concentrate or see more than ever the idea of an individual as being the executive arm of the ideology, mm. which is hatred of the faith. Yeah. So uh, you could stretch and say, yes, all martyrs are offerers of life, yeah. but not all offerers of life are martyrs. Mm. What is the most difficult or challenging part of the canonization process? The miracles. 
verifying the miracles? Uh, no, that they occur or don't. Okay. I am always bombarded, and since I've been here at the seminary, why isn't this cause going ahead? Why does a cause take so long? Yeah. There was just a book recently published, believe it or not, by a sports writer mm. about causes of saints. The, the most absurd thing. It's kind of like, you know, uh, excuse me, I have a doctorate in canon law and a license in theology, so I'm going to write a textbook on neurosurgery. Yeah. I mean, this guy who's a sports writer, and he goes through this whole thing about causes, especially American causes, are not being done because of prejudice and, and anti-Americanism. But in reality, mm. the reason why causes are stopped yeah. is because there are no miracles. Mm. People either stop praying, which brings into question whether the person had a true reputation of holiness to begin with. Because once the Holy Spirit works, he just doesn't say, oh, that's enough, I'm finished, I'm going back to heaven, to speak grossly. Uh, So one of the reasons why is the fact that people don't pray for miracles, or they lose hope and they stop praying, Mm. or God doesn't grant miracles. And that's why a cause may stop or go on hold. It's very rare that a cause will arrive at the dicastery which would have serious, let's say, moral issues involved. Um, I mean, that's I, I don't even know if I could think of even maybe one or two in 38 years because the process on the local level is supposed to be like a big sieve, mm-hmm. that there's a process of constant checking and rechecking and questioning and asking and the obligation of bringing forth positive and negative information. So if the negative information presents itself as extremely serious, then the diocesan bishop would have the responsibility of stopping the cause and not proceeding. Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of causes not going ahead, that's the real problem, Mm -hmm. is is there are no miracles for it. Mm -hmm. Or, like I said, God doesn't grant them for whatever reason in his wisdom, uh, you know, just has his own time schedule, if you will. You, over 38 years, I'm sure, had your hands in a lot of different causes. Uh, One that you told me about last week was uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta. Could you talk about her cause? Was that uh, different because she was famous, different or special uh, in a certain way? It certainly was. a. That one did go through fairly quickly, I would say, within, what, 10, 15 years? Well, uh, again, um, when you talk about going through quickly— we're not used to causes going through with a certain uh, celerity or Mm -hmm. a certain rapidity, if you will. And that's simply because up until now, the process has been so bogged down with juridical requirements that a cause, uh, and, uh, you know, a cause has been basically uh, bogged down in the mud. Uh, The cause of Mother Teresa, I would say, as in the cause of John Paul II, Mm. um, even though the causes went through more quickly than others, and then there, and there are other causes that are going f- even more quickly. Mm. Uh, the uh, severity, the thoroughness, the um, professionalism is n- has never been sacrificed. Sure. Uh, so, in other words, uh, that that is certainly guaranteed uh, the seriousness and the thoroughness of the investigation. Mm-hmm. So, um, on the one hand, again, the cause of Mother Teresa. One of the reasons that the cause went through quickly was, yes, it was given special consideration because of the importance of the cause on the international and on the universal church level. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just to think that after her death for about two and a half, three years, uh, the the dicastery or the congregation was inundated with requests for her canonization 
from Catholics and non-Catholics sure. as well. Reports of miracles from Catholics and non-Catholics as well. So, I mean, there was a, a, a massive, spontaneous writing campaign. Mm. And that's when the dicastery felt that it was valid and it became the first to ask uh, John Paul II to dispense from the five-year waiting period. Mm. Now, the five-year waiting period is arbitrary. Sure. It's simply based upon this concept that a bishop cannot start a cause unless there is a spontaneous reputation of holiness enjoyed by the candidate among the faithful. And after that person's death, that reputation of holiness must constantly grow. And five years has been determined as a more or less reasonable waiting period to verify that that reputation of holiness has grown among the faithful. Some people are proposing to make it 10 years, and I had the opportunity to weigh in on that issue, and I just said that that's, you know, that just doesn't make sense. Mm. Uh, five years is enough in terms of verifying the authentic growth of this reputation, this public opinion, if you will, yeah. among the faithful. Because it is really, in a true sense, what we call a sensus fidelium, sure. the sense of the faithful. Um, according to the Pew Research Center, John Paul II canonized uh, 482 saints, which was more than 300 uh, canonizations in the previous 600 years. Um, why do you think that there was, at that time, a, a, uh, a drastic increase in canonizations? Well, first of all, for sure, the process was tremendously streamlined. Uh, 1983. Excuse me? In 1983. In 1983. Mm -hmm. And again, when we say streamlined, we ha can't get the idea that it, was, uh, it became trite. Right. Uh, it was streamlined because there were many accretions, historical accretions that hung on, because basically when they codified the law in 1917, they took all the law that existed and codified it in the 1917 Code of Canon Law. Mm -hmm. They didn't eliminate anything. They didn't change anything. They just codified it. Yeah. Therefore, a lot of historical, if you will, junk mm -hmm. accretions were brought into the law. Sure. So as time went on, the bishops more and more started to complain about this heaviness, This because then basically what was happening is saints were being declared many, many years after their death, mm -hmm. and they had lost any sense of significance, importance, or meaning for the faithful. And so the bishops themselves began to say, you know, is there any way we can speed up this process so that we can have more meaningful saints for modern, modern men and women for, mm -hmm. the, for the times? And so the process was streamlined, but the seriousness and the of the investigation was never compromised. So um, basically, I think what was going around at the time was a concern of this growing secularism mm -hmm. and the feeling that perhaps having many saints from different areas and different walks of life, different experiences, might provide different people with people they could identify with and they, they could find how to live their lives in that concrete historical situation that they find themselves, whether it be changing the diapers of a baby, whether it be working on the docks, whether it be going to a nine-to-five job, whether it be going to school from nine-to-three, or whatever you can think of as one's job description or one's life. And so I think one of the ideas was to provide uh, the faithful with more examples of holiness that mm. they could easily identify with. 
Final question. I always like to end on a note of hope. We are a people of hope, specifically hope in the resurrection. How can and do saints offer us hope in this particular cultural moment that we're in? That seems to me almost to be a question that answers itself. Mm. They are people, and this is, I think, very important. Pope Francis has emphasized this, and I think we've lost sight of it because we concentrate so much on miracles. We concentrate so much on the defects of the saint. Mm. We want to find out where the flaws are. But when we look at the lives of the saints, they were joyful. Mm. They loved living the Christian faith, the, yeah. the Catholic faith. Yeah. And this is another thing where I think we should kind of like rediscover our Catholic identity sure. and the place of saints in our life, especially here in the United States. Um, that they were men and women of joy. They were men and women of hope. They, uh, they loved the Lord. They loved people. Um, you know, we have this idea, and I think sometimes uh, it has a lot to do with our own uh, iconography or our own uh, portraits of saints. We, pr- you know, we paint them in such uh, dire circumstances with uh, long faces, and, and, and yet when you look at the lives of the saints, their lives are full of joy and happiness. Mm-hmm. Now, it may not be, hey, 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 kind of happiness, you mm. know. But it's, you can see a happiness that brings a peace sure. and a joy that brings a consolation amidst the, the pains and the sorrows and a happiness amidst the joys of life. Mm-hmm. There has to be a balance in, in holiness. It's true that the path to holiness is the path of Calvary. Mm-hmm. No Catholic can deny that. No Christian can deny that. But the path of Calvary, which led to the crucifixion, looks to the joy of Easter Sunday. It's a reality that cannot be separated. And so what our Lord did was to show us that we who, as St. Paul says, we who live and die as the Lord lived and died will one day rise from the dead as he did. Mm. And so uh, death is swallowed up by the death of Christ. And the saints are men and women who lived the Calvary, uh, who carried their crosses up that hill and died in and with the Lord and now are living with him awaiting the day of resurrection, the day of Mm. eternal life, which is basically what, what holiness is going on the path of life this pilgrimage the pilgrimage that leads to heaven Mm. and that's where we're going there are rocks in the road there are curves in the road the road might be slippery but the holy spirit through his power in the church is there with us leading us on and that should bring us courage that Mm. should bring us hope that should bring us the joy that comes from the holy spirit Well, I think true joy is a wonderful place to end our conversation. Monsignor Sarno, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks very much. I I appreciate it, and I enjoyed it myself. Our culture is in a crisis, and the solution to that crisis is the gospel message. St. John's Seminary, the seminary of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, offers an online MA in pastoral ministry degree for anyone interested in receiving formation for ministry. This program helps students improve their knowledge of the Catholic intellectual tradition and develop practical skills for ministry. A studio with professional video, audio, and lighting equipment allows our students to have an enjoyable technological experience, a necessity for any online learning environment. Anyone who is working in and around the Roman Catholic Church in North America needs an education like this. There's no way you could get this kind of education anywhere than at a seminary. Our online Master of Arts in Pastoral Ministry offers you the chance to continue your education in ministry and designed to provide you with the knowledge, spiritual formation, and practical skills that you need 
to serve the family of God in our parishes, schools, and other ministries. By grounding yourself in the intellectual tradition of the Catholic Church, you will be able to go out into this culture and leaven it with the good news. 